0: You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Herodimus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy. Oral traditions are often passed down in a culture in familial lines. Medicine healers, though, can skip generations or move from male to female, or in our guest case this evening, come down over thousands of years uninterrupted in a family bloodline. Joining us to talk about his life and book, The Making of a Healer, Teachings of My Oneida Grandmother, a Quest 2014 release, Russell Four Eagles tells of learning herbs with his grandmother from a very young age, and even after her passing, being schooled and protected by her guidance. Being taught by spirit beings as well as physical elders, Russell Four Eagles gives the reader keys to many things practiced by the Oneida peoples for centuries. One of them is the fire ceremony which he will share tonight, helping many people here heal from past traumas, accidents, illness, or other conscious and unconscious wounds. His memoir is a beautiful journey from childhood through various times of his past lives as well as this life experience as a soldier in Vietnam, and his return and eventual practice as a gifted healer. I hope you all will join us throughout the evening for a beautiful adventure in a life and culture rich with wisdom, deep in personal journeying, and generosity of heart. Thank you so much for joining us, Russell.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Well, I spent the weekend with you. I started your book on Friday, stayed with you all through Saturday night, and then wrote up the show. And I I have to admit, it is my favorite genre, spiritual memoirs, and yours is just a, just a beautiful addition to the genre.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad. I, I thank you for that.
0: You start as uh, life does for all of us in childhood. How did your childhood prepare you for what you do now?
1: Well, when I was uh, um, like three and a half years old, maybe a little bit younger, uh, I had a dream one night that my grandfather was going to pass away, and I I woke up crying, and I, I explained to my mother that she had to go see him right away, but she never did, and he died that night. Well, later on, when I was three and a half, my mother got pregnant, and we lived in a 12-by-16 tar paper shack, you know, pretty much without tar paper. And there wasn't enough room for all the kids there, so my mother asked my grandma if she would take one of the children. Of course, after she heard what I saw, she picked me. And um, by the time I was four, she said that I was going to be the next grandchild healer in the family. And it was... Uh, been an interesting journey, and and you... teaching me without teaching me, if you know what I mean.
0: Well, and I think that's what's one of the beautiful things about the way you've written the making of a healer. You mentioned you went through years of notes and looking back, and um, is it such a gentle repetition? And and I love that you talked about your own impatience. I relate to that highly, and and that you're a quick learner. I also relate to that very well. And and so listening to your grandmother as a child tell you things over and over again, um, was not always so easy. But I I liked that one of the things that you talked about is that in those days, on the on, in an Indian culture in general, but particularly we'll speak to yours, the Anida, that the parents were really there to just love the children and that the aunts and uncles and grandparents were there to school and discipline them. Talk to us about this. It's it's really quite different than common culture today.
1: Well, it's, it's a really amazing way of, of uh, teaching kids because, you know, when, when the parents become the dis- disciplinarian with the children, um, they get in trouble, they tend to run away. But in the village situation, as my grandma grew up, if you got in trouble, you run to your parents because their job was just to love and nurture you, you know. Uh, like I said in the book, the, the grandparents were the teachers and my aunts and uncles were disciplinarians, and we never had real strict disciplinarian, you know, no beatings or nothing like that. But a stern look uh, from a aunt or uncle really got your attention. Uh, they taught us that uh, one of the first things that they teach the young culture, they used to. I don't know if it's still happening anymore, but they used to teach respect, respect for the elders, because they are the wisdom. And uh, I don't think that goes on so much anymore, but it should. The way that uh, Native people taught their children was a wonderful thing.
0: You know, there are many prophecies about the time when children no longer respect their elders. And there's something like that in the Jewish tradition speaking to very difficult times that we are in today. And you you make it really clear. I mean, we lock our elders away. They get separated from their families. Um, and, and so we don't have what we used to have for centuries, for millennial, not only matrilineal cultures, but everybody shared life together from the moment you lived until the moment you died and it wasn't all this separate household or living in different states or different nations
1: exactly we were well every one of us it don't matter what race color creed you were we all started out tribal we all thought basically the same things if you look at even organized religion when they go back we all started out with basically the same principles
0: Your grandmother told you, because of your many times of asking her, what do you mean I'm going to be a healer? How will I know I'm going to be a healer? And she said, you know, you'd know when it was time for you to be a healer. But you had a lot of fascinating experiences, but she trained you first on little animals.
1: Yes. Uh, I think every potential upcoming healer should have to work like I did. I worked from the time I was 8 till I was 16, strictly on animals, birds, kitties, dogs, things like that. And, you know, when a, a guy would bring his dog over with a broken leg and I'd put my hands over it, ask the creator to take care of this dog and help him with his pain and the dog runs away, you can't, you can't BS him. I mean, the dog's leg's healed or it's not healed. Like people, they can do that, uh, what they call it, the placebo effect. But with an animal, there is none of that. It's either the dog is healed, the bird is healed, the cat is healed, or it's not. Does that make sense?
0: yeah and it, I think the it's interesting that you mentioned the placebo effect because it's it's really about i believe the placebo effect is the faith a person has either in God or the faith they have in the healer that they're working with but it's but it's about their own inner um composition, not just about what somebody on the outside says or does
1: right exactly exactly it's uh it's a total it's package when people work with their healer. They uh, they have to have their faith in their self.
0: Yeah, no, I think that one of the things we've talked about on our program for so many decades is this journeying of um, coming to wholeness. But but we have talked about that, and we've had many healers on and many um, people who study the process of healing, including Larry Dawsey, who over the years has written about premonitions, and the power of prayer, and sort of, I think, making clear for the Westerner those things that indigenous peoples worldwide or mystical traditions worldwide have always advanced as um, basic.
1: Right. It's the, the stuff we've always known.
0: One of the points you make that I think is just such a joyous thing for me to see in your book, because so often... It's forgotten, particularly in Western medicine, that God or the creator does all the healing. And a healer really has to kind of get out of the way and let spirit move through them. Talk to us about your journey of, of coming to this capacity. It doesn't always happen in an instant.
1: No, it doesn't. It took many, many years. It took many years and several really good lessons to, uh, to get that. You know, I was like every other young healer out there. I started working out with people with cancer, and their cancer went away, and pretty soon I got the big head. But it only took a little while for the crater to slap me a time or two, and I figured out that it wasn't me, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. But specifically to cancer, you talked about when you would take your hands over the energy of a person and reach a place where there was cancer, you would actually get a physical symptom, like a sharp pain in your hand.
1: Just like a red-hot ice pick eight inches long going through my hand. But that that happened because I was 21, 22 back from Vietnam, and I was starting to run into some cancer. And I made the mistake of asking God never to let me miss it. And from that point on, I still get spikes to this day, and that's been over 55 years, you know. Wow. Where Forty-five years,
0: whatever. Wow, and and do you find that it's it's sort of your own um, inner barometer, or was it the result of your praying that you know?
1: I'm pretty sure it's my praying because at first I would only feel the cancer, but now I can actually see the DNA in my mind's eye when I'm working on somebody. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, what am I on? Got my eight hundred. An 81st and 82nd cancer client today. Wow! Of well, that, I've been 99.6 percent successful.
0: Wow! So let's talk about that specifically. What is cancer? I mean, you know, we are we're all told it's an autoimmune disorder, and in Europe they treat it like a chronic illness, and here we go to war on the person's body.
1: Right. And and what I do is is I ask the creator to fix the, the cancer. Is really a mutation in the check gene. Do you know which one that is? No. That's the gene in our body that tells our cells to divide, and then half of it dies off, so we stay relatively the same size. But if they're not dividing and dying, you know what they're doing? They're dividing, 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 dividing. And a couple billion later, a couple billion divided cells later, you got the tiniest little tumor you could ever imagine.
0: What do you think it is about the current... um, quality of life on planet earth that there is so much cancer
1: absolutely my grandmother started healing in 1905 and she healed till 1986 and she had uh, very few cancer clients up until about the 70s now i was kind of looking back on history here a little bit say well what is the difference i started picking up cancer clients in the early 70s too and I said, well, what is the correlation here? Why is there so much more cancer now than there was then? Of course, obviously, it's the chemicals we put in our food. It's the chemicals that don't belong in our body that mutate the check gene. And one of the things I noticed was when cancer really started being prevalent when, uh, when pharmaceuticals come out. And that could be just an accident, but I wonder if they have something to do with... Uh, with uh, synthetic chemicals that we put in our body when we use Western medicine.
0: Hmm. Well, there's there's certainly a, um, many people who would say that it didn't necessarily make their health any better, but suppressed illness. And certainly, the more natural approach to healing in general, worldwide, is that we literally turn up the amplitude of a disease to drive it out of the body rather than trying to suppress it and drive it deeper into the bones and organ system.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I uh, had to give a talk at the uh, neighboring hospital uh, here Tuesday, I think it was, and one of the nurses we was talking about cancer and Lyme disease especially, and uh, one of the registered nurses who was putting the program on, she says, You guys in alternative medicine. I stopped her. I said, What do you mean alternative? I said, In my family, it's been around 8,000 years. How long has Western medicine been here?
0: Yeah. It's very true. I mean, it's very true. And we live at a beautiful time, as difficult as it is, though, when all of these ancient methods and Spiritual teachings are being passed on and opened up for the world, like a book like yours. You know, you shared these exquisite methodologies that we're going to talk about. We're going to, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the heart box, and later on, we'll talk about the fire ceremony. If you're just joining us, our guest is Russell Four Eagles and his book, The Making of a Healer Teachings of My Oneida Grandmother, a Quest 2014 release. Hello, I'm Catherine Ravenwood, author of How to Create Sacred Water, A Guide to Rituals and Practices, published by Inner Tradition, Bear and Company. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. I hope you enjoy the show and all of her wonderful guests. Please read my book and send your prayers to the water. Thank you, water, for your gift of life.
2: I see you clean
0: and restored. Amen. As we know, anything we put into water um, is amplified. So we can make every glass we drink holy. We can, at high tide, bless the water so that she carries it back into the deepest part of the oceans. Our guest, if you're just joining us, is Russell Four Eagles. He's written just a beautiful memoir. If you are looking to learn something about Native traditions, specifically the Oneida tradition, that he is a part of, of many generations, thousands of years long in his family, The Making of a Healer, Teachings of My Oneida Grandmother. It's a Quest 2014 release. So I want to come back to something, Russell, you mentioned um, kind of in passing in your book about that you weren't like the best student, words and writing hasn't been your forte. And it dawned on me that there was a neurosurgeon who has since passed on, Leonard Schlein, who used to say that we left sort of this intuitive, matrilineal, matriarchal society at the time that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all were learning languages and that the language really took us out of the strength of our right hemisphere and moved us into a very linear left hemisphere
1: society. Sure. I think that's, that's quite probable. Uh, we, uh, the way I was taught, I, I, I don't think in, you know, like most people think in words. I think in pictures and phrases, or pictures meaning phrases, I should say, would be more correct. It was tough when I first started school because it it was completely different for me, uh, trying to go from my thought processes to the way they wanted me to learn. My grandmother uh, told me when I was quite young that I was an indigo child, and I had no idea what that meant. And she said she'd heard of a couple before me, but she'd never uh, saw any until I was born. Like I said, I wasn't a very good student, but I I relatively never studied when I was in school. I could pick up enough from what the teacher was saying to not have to read the books, and I could still pass the test. I was an average student. I could have been great, but I wasn't, (laughs) you know.
0: I think there are many of us like that who actually doubted our own intelligence because we weren't linear learners. We were holistic kind of learners who saw through our vision. And as a child, you had many visions. You shared with us already the one that keyed your great your grandmother into knowing that you were the next healer in the family to be trained because you had a dream of your grandfather passing before he did. Or your uncle, was it?
1: No, it was my grandfather your grandfather?
0: Okay, um, and you also sometimes would speak in a language that was a very ancient one. We call the Aztec tradition.
1: Nawa is the correct name for it.
0: Tell us about that.
1: Well, shortly after I had the dream of my grandfather, I had another dream, and my father was Motacazoma. Uh, he was the king god of of uh, the Aztec people. I was there when. Hernan Cortez landed. And of course, they captured my father and took him to the Great Pyramid. And and the Spanish came to me and said, You're going to have to get eight slaves to carry these three heavy chests of gold to the Spanish mission up north, or we're going to kill your father. And I I said, But we, we don't have slaves. You know, we had peons and we had commoners, we had noblemen and we had royalty, but we didn't have any slaves. And they said you're gonna you gotta get these eight slaves to carry these three heavy chests of gold and when you get where you're going you're gonna cut their throats. And so they took me to the city square. We had our city had four and a half million people at that time. It was the biggest city in the world. We had running water, we had toilets, and we had our, our bathhouses. Somewhat reminiscent of the of the Romans I would guess. But anyway, um, they took me to the city center and I said to the criers, there was like 40, 50 people there that they would repeat whatever Noble or royalty would say. It was like a walking newspaper. And so I told them that I need eight volunteers to carry heavy chests of gold and that it's going to be brutal, hard work. We're going to be hungry all the time and that. Um, When we get there, I'm going to cut their throats. And the Spanish guy started beating me with the flat of his sword, putting welts all over me. And he said, nobody's going to come, and we're going to kill your father. It's going to be your fault. And I said, well, why do you worry about what isn't? Let's concentrate on what is. And so I said, let's see what happens the next morning. And we went there to the city square the next morning, and guess how many people were there? 8,000. Now, you may wonder, why would 8,000 people show up for a job where they know they're going to get their throat cut? When the Spanish came, they called us heathens because they didn't know our word for God, you know, mm-hmm. for the Creator. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, the reason those people showed up was that in our way, in the Nahuatl way, Aztec way, we had four layers of heaven. We had a peon's layer, a commoner's layer, a nobleman's layer, and royalty layer. If you was a good peon, you'd make it to the to the pion layer, and if you weren't, you would just go away. You'd be your final death. If you are a good commoner, you'd make it to the commoner's layer of heaven, and if you were a good nobleman, you'd make it to the nobleman's layer of heaven. But, of course, if he's royalty, you automatically had a, a ticket inside of the royalty layer of heaven. But anybody that gave up their life for the king god or the people, the royalty, they I uh, would get an instant trip to the royalty layer of heaven and so we I told I give the guys the rest of the day off and we took off with the gold and we walked for months carrying those heavy chests of gold and about every hour I would to leave one guy so one guy would be resting and, and the next guy would go on and an hour later another guy got off and the guy who had rested went on and went that throughout the day for weeks and weeks and, weeks and I, a week or so before before we got to the, the mission, we were taking it to the one of the Spanish guys took a horseshoe nail and a thing, and he pecked a Spanish cross into the a rock, and he put the date 15. And he was going to write a nine, but the guy said, "Come on, we got to go." So he made it look like a four, but it was really 1519. And I know to this day there's a rock someplace. There's a picture of that rock, and we carried those chests of gold two weeks on foot carrying them. We didn't travel real far, you know mm-hmm, what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so we got there, and this, this this Spanish mission had kind of like you imagine the Alamo—the the rounded front. Yeah. It had a, a, a wood floor on top made out of planking, and it had a basement underneath. They would uh, they would take uh, clamshells. and and cook them and leave the lime, and they'd make mortar. So they laid laid rot with uh, the type of cement they made out of the clamshells. And so we went to the basement, and on the left side of the basement, there was a set of steps that they had the Indian slaves at the time, I believe them were probably, uh, maybe Apache or, or I don't know, Navajo or somebody. And they carved uh, steps going underneath the basement floor, and they carved a room out, And there was enough room for three of the peons to stand on one side, five on the other, and the three chests of gold in the middle. And I went to the first guy and said, are you ready? And he said, yes, and I sliced his throat. He stood there while the blood run down. And finally he collapsed and I went to the next guy and on and on and went around. While I was doing it, I remember hearing the Spanish guy say, these guys are animals, they're not even trying to get away. But they didn't understand about our way of heaven, you know. And so I got to the last guy, and, and uh, I cut his throat, and I felt a pain in my back, and this sword come out my chest. They'd run a sword through me. He pulled it out, and I, I turned around, and I collapsed to my knees, and my blood was running out. And my wife had come in vision to me, as I was speaking Nawa to her. And I said, take my children and, and go, because these guys lie. They're, they're here to stay, you know? And uh, I collapsed on the floor, and the last thing I remember seeing was a Spaniard's face with a look of horror on it, because in their way, the worst thing they could do would be kill somebody and have them curse you before they die, because there was nothing you could do about it. And I thought it rather humorous that for the rest of his life, every bit of bad luck that happened, <laughs> he thought I was the cause of it. Mm-hmm. It was simply himself. <laughs>
0: It's, it's a phenomenal thing to have um, precise recall of past lives, and many people do, and many cultures acknowledge that this is an important part of our current medical situation or our spiritual crises or our emotional Oof. imbalances, and you talk about that, as do others, fortunately, from around the world, That, and they call it technically biogenealogy that... Oh. That we don't just suffer our own life, this life. We also bring with us the soul memory of other lives. And I think one of the keys you talk about that your Anaida grandmother taught you was to walk in love and not to walk in fear. And it seems that oftentimes when we remember past lives, we remember the traumatic death or we remember the traumatic death of our children or we remember the trauma of the lifetime as it ends. What happens to those traumas?
1: Well, those traumas get stored in our heart box, of course, and they will go with us from life to life to life to life as long as we don't deal with them. Now, I suppose I should inform your listening audience what the heart box is and what it is as a physical place. You know, how many of your listeners do you suppose remember that first relationship breakup they had? They lost their breath and their, their heart physically hurt. And the reason that is is the heart box is a little little rectangle box behind our heart and our backbone, and it's about three-quarters of an inch square. Well, that relationship breakup we have when we're 13 or 15 or 18 or 21, whatever it is, is as big around as your arms when you hold them clear out, and you stuff that in that heart box, it expands. So when it expands, the backbone doesn't move, so it pushes against the heart and uh, lungs. And then what happens is after a while, you notice it goes away. Well, the creator gives us the unconscious ability to steal energy off our own body to compress that stuff. Now, most ladies get that stiff neck. That's where they steal from. Most guys, we wreck our shoulders, and then we go to our low back. And so how we clear that is we do my grandmother's fire ceremony. And what we do with that is we'll take a piece of paper, and we thank the creator for helping us to forgive ourselves for situations where we had have, have no control, and that includes past lives. If you remember them, you can ask the Creator to help you forgive yourself for whatever that trauma was that you put in there. And, you know, I, I tell people, well, think what happened today that hurt you, or yesterday, or last week, last month, last year. And when you get as many things written down as you can, because the more you release, the more energy gets to come from your heart box back to your body where you need it. The the next thing we do then is we thank the Creator for helping us to forgive ourselves for situations where we had control. Now, that that may be anything that we did that we didn't act in our highest light. You know, sometimes we say things we don't mean, we do things we don't really mean, or actually sometimes we do mean them. But the Creator gave us the innate ability to know right from wrong. And so... Um, even though sometimes it feels good to say things, it's not necessarily right, and they end up in our heart box also. The next thing we do is we thank the Creator for helping us to forgive people, places, situations, and things that have hurt us throughout our life. And that, again, could be past life stuff, could be this life stuff, could be a combination of everything. And then when we get all of those things written out again, thinking what happened today, yesterday, last week, last month, last year, we take and there's a fourth thing we do at the fire ceremony, and that is if we know what we want, um, we thank the creator for it. Four years ago, I was terminal uh, for the fourth time with cancer. I was, a, like I said, I was a Vietnam veteran, and I I. Uh, my first day in country, I got 400 Asian orange barrels and half of the cutting torch to make uh, outhouse bathrooms with it so we could pull them out and burn the crap, you know. So anyway, um, the four times I've been terminal, my cancer never went away until I forgave it. thanked it for the lesson and thanked the Creator for allowing me to let it go. The Creator does not cause cancer, but He gives us free will and He will not interfere with what we do. So. Um, you always say that last part as if it's already happened. Because if you know it's already happened, the cradle make sure that it already happens. And I, uh, Like I said, I've been terminal four times with the cancer, and this last time I went from 200 pounds down to uh, about 98. And my doctor said, you can't have no more chemo. I said, I come here to tell you I'm not taking no more because you guys are killing me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Uh, I did my 45 radiations and uh, all it did was spread into my top half of my right lung was full of cancer. It was in my neck and throat. They cut the lining of my throat out, took my tonsils, took uh, a lot of the lymph nodes out of the side of my neck that were were, uh, cancerous. Now you may wonder why would a medicine man do that when the other two times I was well, the three times I was terminal before this last time, I went and did my grandma's herbal stuff and the stuff that I worked out and got rid of it. One time in 12 days, I went from being terminal to being free of cancer. Well, the reason I did that was because I went to the doctor. I found a lump in my throat I swallowed, and my food would go down, and it would go around this lump and then continue on its journey to my stomach, and I went and got 40 biopsies they took, and they said, yep, it's cancer. And he said, are you going to work with us? And I said, well, I don't know, Doc. He said, well, you never work with us. You come get your biopsies, you go away, and your cancer disappears. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. I said, I'm going to do the same thing I do every time. I'm gonna... It was a, I am going to." It was at the Minneapolis Hospital, which is two and a half hours from Spooner, and that was Friday morning. I said, this afternoon I'm going to stop at Spooner, pick up, couple, three of my buddies, and we're going to go camping up to Copper Harbor, Michigan. That's as far north as you can go in Lake Superior. And I said, uh, I'm going to go out on the peninsula and I'm going to pray. My grandmother taught me, you know, that Native Americans, we use tobacco when we pray all the time. And she taught me, if you're holding your tobacco up and praying, before the sun comes up and the sky turns red, you can ask the creator a question and he'll answer you. And so I walked out of that peninsula 3.30 in the morning. I'm up holding my tobacco and praying and praying and praying. And the sky turned red. And I said, Crater, what is it you want me to do? And he said to me, well, you know how you've wanted to work with doctors the last 50 years? I said, yep. He said, you never work with them. And I felt a little bit like Jesus must. He said, well, they're going to crucify you, but it's going to be okay. Well, listen, Jack, you don't have the nails in your hand, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And anyway... So I went back to the doctor and I said, Yeah, I'm going to work with you. He says, You are. And I said, Yes, I am. And he said, Alrighty then. When I was out praying, what the Creator told me was, He said, They're going to cut you from the top of the ear to the bottom of your, the two bones between your neck. And they're going to take out most of the cancerous tumors but they can't take the one that's hooked to the carotid artery because they'll kill you. He said they're gonna cut your tonsils out and they're gonna cut the lining of your throat out, but the cancer's already in the second lining. He says they're gonna do three and a half months of chemo. They wanna do four, but it'll kill you. He says they're gonna do 45 radiations, and when you get all done with all of that, the cancer's gonna move into the top half of your right lung and you're gonna be dying when you leave the hospital. But he says, not to worry, you're gonna go home and do the herbs like I've always shown you, and you're gonna do your maple syrup and baking soda, and your cancer's gonna go away. Now, I was a veteran, and, uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> anyway, so I went to the doctor Monday morning, right? And the doctor says, you know, are you gonna work with us? I said, yeah. He said, oh, amazing. And I said to him, I said, uh, but before we start all this, Doc, can I give you a prophecy from God? He said, there's no such thing as that. And I said to him, what is it gonna hurt you to write that down in the back of your little black book there? And so I explained, just like I did to you about what the Creator said. And so he wrote her down, and sure enough, they cut my neck, they took the lining of my throat out, ended up with a feeding tube. They did 45 radiations and three and a half months of chemo. I was down to close to 100 pounds and I said, I'm not taking, went to the doctor there, the oncologist the said, I'm not taking any more chemo. And he said, well, we're here to tell you that we're not gonna give you any because it'll kill you. And so I went all the way through and sure enough, I moved into my right lung, just like the creator said. I got down to less than 100 pounds, just like the creator said. And they sent me home to die, just like he said. Now since I'm a veteran, they put me on temporary Whole disability. Well, you know, 100 pounds couldn't walk, had to have a walker or help to get anywhere. And so I uh, went home and I started on my own protocol. And uh, the first month I was, re- well, I mean, from the time I got my first dose of chemo, seven months I had diarrhea and vomiting, 724. So that first month I was home. I'd fill up my feeding tube. Five minutes later, I'd have to have help to get to the bathroom so I could throw it up or lose it through diarrhea. Well, anyway, as it went, first month went by. I wasn't feeling any better. I thought I was dying. I mean, I knew I was dying. The second month went by, and I started to feel a little better. And the third month went by, and I was feeling even better. Then. You know, like I told you, they put me on temporary disability. Well, January, I cashed my October check, my November check, my December check. When I cashed my January check, they called me up. Said, are you cashing your checks? I said, well, I hope so. I'd be starving to death if I wasn't. They weren't worried about (laughs) if I was alive or not, if Mm -hmm. somebody was stealing money from them. (laughs) Anyway, they said, well, geez, we maybe better do a PET scan. And so... 13th of January of uh, 2012, they did a PET scan, and lo and behold, all the cancer was gone except for three spots in my lung. Now, the, the radiologist, the guy who did the PET scan, he said, well, you got to go talk to your doctor. I went to the doctor's office. He wasn't there. I waited a little while, and he came to the door, and he says, go home. We're going to do a PET scan in two months, and then he left. So I went home. March I went back, they did a a second PET scan, and now all the cancer's gone. Again, they sent me to his room. Again, he wasn't there. He came to the door and said, go home. We're going to do another PET scan in two months. And I said, just a second back, before you take off. Are you or are you not? The doctor told me that we can only do two PET scans a year because it causes cancer. He said, yes, I am. He said, go home, be back in two months. I went back in two months, it was all cleared in. And the radiologist again sent me to his room. This time he was at his desk and he said, what did you do, Russell? And I said, you know what I did? And he said, how would I know what you did? I have 5,000 clients, I can't remember what we talked about. I said, look in the back of your black book there. So he went to the back of that leather book and he sat down, he read and he read. how could you know this a year and a half ago? How could you know that this is exactly how was going to go? And I said, well, a prophecy from God's only a prophecy from God if it's true. I said, if I had died, it had been all bullshit, you know.
0: <laughs> we have to take a little break. It's a beautiful story, and I hope everybody listening, because there's nobody listening who either themselves or a family member or a friend or a loved one hasn't had the challenge of what happens when you get a cancer diagnosis. We'll be right back. Our guest is Russell Four Eagles. His beautiful book, The Making of a Healer, Teachings of My Oneida Grandmother, a Quest 2014 release.
2: This is Deborah White Plume, Oglala Lakota, from the beautiful
1: Pine Ridge Homelands,
2: here with Zoe Hieronymus on 21st Century Radio. If you want to learn more about oweaku or moccasins on the ground, our website is www.oweakuinternational.org.
0: Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Russell Foreagles is with us this evening. His book, The Making of a Healer, Teachings of My Oneida Grandmother, a Quest 2014 release. And, of course, all our guests are linked right at the front of 21st St. CenturyRadio.com. We're almost out of time this hour, Russell. But you mentioned several things in the story of your cancer journey, and I don't. And I'd like to like just sort of pull those two things out. One of them, which other elders have shared with us before on the program, and which I also experience as being very true, is that when we pray from gratitude, it's a very different experience than praying a petitionary prayer from Lack. So you mentioned you went out on the peninsula, you prayed to the creator with gratitude for your healing, but you also talked about using tobacco. And of course, it doesn't matter what indigenous community you read about native to North America, tobacco has always been sort of a cornerstone offering. Why tobacco?
1: Well, that goes back to our creation story, which is probably more than I have time to do right now. But uh, well, let me give you just a, a quick rundown. When there was nothing but void, the Creator created the universe and the cosmos. And the stars formed and the worlds formed around Him, and when the worlds was right, the Creator went world to world, seeding life, you know, grass, rocks, fish, trees, animals, everything that His coming children would need. And um, when the time was right, He went back and made... People for each world the way they should be made for that particular world. He got here to Turtle Island, right here not very far from where I live, and he scooped up two piles of red dust. He reached over to the cliffs of Dover, picked up two piles of white dust. He reached over to Africa, the southern shore there, picked up the black sands, made two piles of them. And he reached to the Gobi Desert, brought back the yellow dust. If you're familiar with the medicine wheel, those colors are almost universally on every medicine wheel on the outside, the white, red, black, and yellow. Now, he poked his finger in those piles of dust, and then he gave energy from each side of his body to one pile of dust, and that, of course, become first man and first woman of every race. Now, we were all there. We all spoke the same language. <coughs> Excuse me. That, that little cough I have is due to the radiation I got. Anyway, so... He breathed life into us, and, and, you know, the first thing we did was was we started whining. We need light so we can see and dark so we can sleep, and the crater said, listen, you guys, you're my children. I love you. I've given you free will. Let no one take that away from you, as I will not, and he said, we were all whining, saying, well, we need. Light so we can see and dark so we can sleep. And we need to know what is food and what is shelter. What are we doing when we're thirsty? What are we doing when it's cold? Where does fire come from? How do we build? it? said, listen, you guys. I'll give you everything you need to survive, but you don't know everything. He says, you don't know everything. But first and foremost, I'm going to give you four medicines. He said, the first medicine I'm going to give you is sage so that you may purify yourself before you talk to me. He said, the second medicine I'm going to give you is tobacco. He says, when you pray, you hold your tobacco up, and then I know you've got a good mind and a good heart. He said, if you don't hold your tobacco up, I won't know if you're right in the head and may not hear you. He says, the third medicine I'm giving you is the grass, And he says, you know a lot, you know enough to survive, but you don't know everything when you've got a question of particular importance. He said, you light your sweetgrass make poor circles with it and you think your question to me and he said i'll send an angel or good spirit to bring you the answer but know this i have a lot of children and lots of worlds i don't have time to hand deliver them so if you ask the question you pay attention because if you miss it say la vie i've got bigger fish to fry and then of course the last medicine you give us was the white cedar tree you could take a sprig about the size of a silver dollar make a cup of tea out of it. it's a tonic it's good for you he says, uh, you can put a sprig over your door. You can burn it as smudge. He said, if you eat the wrong foods and you get all constipated, he said, take a sprig as big as your head spread out and boil it in a couple quarts of water till that water turns red-brown and drink a cup. And you got to have patience. Though. You know how I know this? I didn't have patience. <laughs> and but now you have lots I of patience. the only thing I can say about <laughs> that is if, if you don't have the patience to wait for that cup to work, you better put a seatbelt on your toilet so you don't hurt your neck <laughs> when you hit the ceiling.
0: Okay. Well, you know, it's it's so interesting. I made a little joke. You have lots of patients now, as in the clients that come to you. But it's it's um I love the way you just sort of make it easy for people to to feel close to the story, that it's not something ancient, that it's not foreign, that it's that it all makes sense. So next hour what we'll do is we'll actually walk through The heart box a little more. We'll actually walk through the fire ceremony because I find it such a beautiful, simple way that anybody's life can be improved. And and also, I think Russell, I I I just need to say thank you um, for taking the time to tell your story. Because as another point person, I mean, you were point in Vietnam and you chose that role for your buddies in infantry to go out front to make sure there were no booby traps or tripwires or bombs or whatever. Um, And I'd like to talk about that because um, those who are point people, whether they're activists or soldiers or emergency room doctors or nurses or first responders are all running on adrenaline highs. And you talk about that. And having been a point person my whole life, first in sports and then as a whistleblower activist, um, I'm, I have a little own self-interest here oh, <laughs> in, hearing, in hearing what you have to say. And I also feel like, you know, when we realize now that worldwide one out of ten people is displaced, so basically, the whole world is suffering to some degree from post-traumatic stress disorder and Absolutely. adrenal disease. So if you're just joining us, I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. Russell Foreagles is with us this hour and next. He's written a beautiful book. I encourage you all to read it. Uh, it's just beautifully done and will take you into that inner place where your heart lives boldest. The Making of a Healer teachings of my oneida grandmother a quest 2014 release we're going to take a break we'll come back to you next hour and we'll cover this and more if you're looking for a just wonderful memoir in the spiritual tradition read russell four eagles 2014 quest release the making of a healer teachings of my Oneida grandmother. Russell continues to join us this hour. He is a medicine man covering the whole gamut of emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual healing. He has traveled the world, Canada, Mexico, Central and South America, as well as some European countries, and people come from all over the world to see him. One of the remarkable parts about being part Ojibwa, part Menominee, part Oneida is that Russell Four Eagles was raised in the Northwoods and trained by his grandmother, he being 202 generations of healers. It's an extraordinary reality, Russell, that you all have preserved, and it saddened me so much as it did you when you wrote about a medicine man you knew who had no apprentices and his medicine was lost with his life.
1: Yes, it's it's a terrible thing when we don't share that. That's one of the things that my grandmother said to me. She said, don't lose the medicine. She says, make sure you pass it on, and I, I thought... She had given me so much information from the time I was four that as soon as I could write, I started scribbling in notebooks. Boy, some of them are really hard to decipher, and some of them I've lost over the years. but I, Because of the way she taught me, she, she asked a lot of questions. I'd ask a question... And she'd ask a question, and I'd ask another question, and she'd ask a question. Next thing, I had my answer, and I wasn't really sure how I got there, but Mm -hmm. it worked. Mm -hmm. She would make me repeat a story over and over and over and over again until I had it right.
0: Which is really how the best teachers teach, and it's not through dictum, and it's not through tests per se it's repetition you know I actually learned that as a broadcaster years ago I've been doing this for about 30 years in my first years as a uh, full-time daily broadcaster I believed I never should tell the same story twice (laughs) 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 yeah well that was really what I believed I felt like oh everything had to be new all the time and of course after doing that for a couple of years I realized that that's not how people learn. They don't even really learn from information. People learn from story, and that's really what's so magnificent about the way you teach is that you teach through story. And in some of your stories, whether it was your own vision quest or being lost or what you believed to be lost when you were a child, um, you discovered you actually have a spirit guardian. Uh, Share a little bit about this with us.
1: Well, when my folks lived on a dead-end road... Um, our property was on the edge of an area called Casey Mounds, and at the time was five miles wide and seven or eight miles long without a road in it. I mean, it was just a big chunk of woods. And I used to wander off when I was little before I went to Graham's. Even after I went to Graham's, I, when I came back home and was living with my folks during the school year, they said, as long as I keep the field, they had a little seven-ten acre field below the house. I said, you can go in the woods as long as you see the field all the time. And so I'd wander around the field, you know, and one morning I was going back there and uh, <laughs> I saw a, a doe licking off her second fawn. She just had him, And so I sneaked right up on them, you know, and they run down a little valley and up a hill and I, I watched where they went and I sneaked up on them and I got about 15 feet from the fawns again and they did it again a second time. And I got close to them again and, they did it a third time, only the hill they went on was real brushy, so I went up there, and I was looking for them little ponds wandering around and around, and finally couldn't find them. They'd say, said, well, I better get back to the field, and I walked up and down the three hills, and guess what, there was no field, so I walked back to where I was again, and I walked a different direction. Still, there was no field, so I thought, well, as long as I'm here, I might as well enjoy it, so I went exploring, and I'd been out there for the longest time. I noticed the shadows started getting short, and then they were starting to get long again. I saw. oh, geez, I better get out of here. And uh, this is quite a condensed version anyway. Which we need. <laughs> yes, yes. So anyway, I came to a big swamp, and I looked to the right. As far as you could see, the swamp wound back like a long snake going back to the right. And I looked to the left, and long, just like a snake again, going way back into the left. And I was way up high in the air, and I couldn't figure out how that swamp was up there. But anyway... I heard what sounded like an old John Deere. My dad had a John Deere tractor and you had a big flywheel and you'd, you'd spin it and it'd go pump, 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 pum, and sometimes take off and sometimes it'd just stop. Well, I heard one of them. I thought, well, maybe there's a house that direction. So I walked that way and all I did was kick up a rough grouse. It was during mating season, you know. And that's what was doing the drumming. but I didn't know that at the time. And so... Uh, I was following the swamp, so maybe this will come out somewhere, run into a great big, huge tree about 120, 30 feet high with no bark on it. I said, well, I can use that for a marker. I'll put my back against it, and I'll look for another big tree, and then I can walk in a straight line, which I did. I went from one tree to another, but every time I went to the next tree, that, that great big, tall tree kept getting shorter and shorter until I couldn't see it anymore, but I kept it up walking from tree to tree and finally came back out to the, to another swamp, just like the other one, real long, skinny swamp. And uh, I decided I'll walk the other way this time. Well, it wasn't only about half hour later. I came back to a great big tree, and it, that was okay. It was another big dead pine tree. I thought, this is really great, another marker tree. I could try it again. But when I walked around the tree, I looked up, and it was the same one. I'd left about an hour before, and I panicked, and I went off running. And I ran and ran and ran until I couldn't run no more, and I was laying on the forest floor crying, asking God to save me, you know. I said, there must be something you need me to do. You can't let me die out here, because I had this big vision of a bear following me. Well, as it turned out, uh, I heard a, heard a voice, and it was a, a native man standing there. He said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I'm lost. And he said, well, you're not lost. You're somewhere, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah. You know, being somewhere felt a lot better than being lost. And he took me for a walk, and he showed me medicine. And we walked and walked, and we kept going uphill. and we came to a spot in the forest. It was huge trees, and the sun would shine down in little little shards of light, you know. And, and we was on this deer runway, and uh, up ahead there was one cross perpendicular to it. But the light was shining over there, and and uh, he said, "What's that over there?" And I said, "Well, it looks like a red rock." So he said, "Well, let's go see it." And I started to cut across. He said, "No, you got to stay on the path." And it would be years later that I'd figure out the path he was talking about was a red road, not not the path in the woods. Mm-hmm. you know you're only six, you don't know a lot
0: no but but you know the the reason I wanted you to share some of that story is that millions of people are having experiences as children that the culture takes away from them as being sacred and calls it just imagination, which imagination is not just nothing, it's a conjurer so yes. Um, yes. It was, I thought, fascinating throughout your story. If you don't mind, I'm going to jump ahead to a punchline that you never knew the name of your spirit guide until your own young son told you. Share with us how that happened, because I'm going, oh, yeah, here's the next healer in that line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, my, uh, my spirit guide had brought me to this property I'm standing on right now. And way back in the field, there was a little dip and a little tiny mound. And he told me that I had to build a house around that burial mound. So I designed a house that had a 20 by 22 foot garden so I could surround that little bitty mound. And I built the house, and we were just about done, probably a month from being done. I told my wife of the time, I said, let's put the other house up for sale. I don't want to be a landlord. And so on Wednesday, we put it up for sale. On Friday, the guy said, if you could be out in seven days, I'll give you $5,000 more than you want. I said, well, what happens if we can't get out? He said, I'll take $1,000 off a day till we get to the original price. Well, we got out. So the kids' rooms were carpeted, and we had their beds all set up, and the wife was putting dishes away. And and me and the youngest daughter were watching TV on top of a cardboard box, because we didn't have our entertainment center yet. And uh, we heard this blood-curdling scream, and I went running down. Now, this brand-new house hadn't hadn't been edited in the dark. So uh, we've got a double hallway, an entrance hallway. Then we've got a hallway in the bedroom. And I went back in that bedroom, and I I couldn't find the light switch pure black in there. And so I finally found the doorknob. I opened it. Well, my little girl came running in. She knocks me in the thing. They think, oh, great, I'm in here with a murderer now that can see in my, killing my kid. And now I can't do nothing about it. But finally, I found the switch for the bedroom. I turned it on. And my little boy's got his blankets pulled right up to his chin. And there was a butt print on his knees. And I said, what's the matter, Trav? And he says, well, Dad, this guy's sitting on me. And I said, really, is he hurting you? And he said, no. I said, well, he's a spirit, Travis. I said, I can't, I can't make him do anything. I said, why don't you ask him really nicely? So he says, Mr. Chicago, would you please get up? And the butt print came out of the blankets and he jerked his knees up. And that's when I discovered that that was my spirit guide name because my spirit guide is buried in this little mound here. When I was digging the basement, He made me move the house three times to get it just right.
0: Yeah, and if people read your book, they'll realize that we're not just talking about moving it on paper. You staked it out, taking days and hours, and then at night you're told, oh, no, you have to move it again and then again. And I was thinking, you know, when you were telling us about the story of your own journey to overcoming cancer, that on the fourth time you got it as a result of the Agent Orange and other things you were exposed to in Vietnam, um, that you did what Spirit told you, even though it seemed like it was going to take your life. So let's talk for a moment about um, listening to Spirit's call and what happens when we don't answer. Well,
1: the main thing is if you don't answer, you know First they blow a little breeze at you, and then they'll take and give you a little punch. And then if you don't listen, the next time they'll take a two by four to you. <laughs> just how it is. Or as or
0: as we sometimes joke, they'll just go find somebody who listens a lot better.
1: Mm hmm. When... Well, I find the crater has got a great sense of humor, but he's not afraid to use a two by four.
0: <laughs> when um. You were in Vietnam, I mentioned, at the, at the end of last hour, and something I wanted to talk about this hour I'd like to sort of get a jump on, which is sure. the fact that so many people are suffering. I'd say the whole culture. If you watch news, it gives you some form of trauma. If you open your heart, there's trauma planet-wide, and you feel it. Um, Worldwide. Worldwide. Exactly. So we're basically all suffering to some degree of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I mentioned that, you know, doctors, emergency room paramedics, um, frontline responders, people like me who have been whistleblowers in the media. I would almost say, as I've said to some firemen who go hyperthyroid like I did, I went, well, it's a real nuisance being an adrenaline junkie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure it is.
0: Talk to us about that.
1: Well, you know, when you come back to the States, we weren't welcomed home, you know, when we come back. They were throwing water balloons filled with urine at us. And when I was walking through the airport in O'Hare Airport in Chicago, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's got corridors half-mile long, you know. And I'm walking up the corridor, and there was a little tiny, little skinny gal. about I could reach around her with both hands, standing at the water fountain. I said, that little girl must be a camel. She'd been drinking there for 15 minutes, you know, and I just... Got to go past her. She turned around and spit a mouthful of water on me and called me an effing baby killer. I said, excuse me, miss, Uh, you must have me mixed up with somebody else. I said, i never killed no babies in Vietnam. And I said, besides, why are you protesting the soldiers? Why aren't you protesting the senators who send us there? She went away crying. I I felt bad about making her cry, but she was uh, a little confused about what she was doing. Now, because I was a healer before I went to Vietnam, um, and you know a healer's job is to save lives, correct? Well, being Native American, they put me on point. So you're on your toes, 724, 365, or like in my case, I extended for two more weeks. I extended for six months, but I got hit the fifth time, and they made me go home. But anyway, that... Uh, That created a lot of post traumatic stress out of me. Now, my father was German, Ojibwe, with some Dakota. And uh, it's not a great combination. He was just a little bit stubborn. And I picked up some of that. Now, my grandmother taught me this fire ceremony when I was like six, seven years old. And she gave it to me to give to people. But I was the national. In 1996, I was the the sleep study for the National Sleep Foundation. I was, the movie they did, I did six 24-hour sleep study periods where they film you and put the wires all over you. And I slept two and three-quarter hours a night in 10-minute segments. The rest, I, I was full of adrenaline from nightmares I was having about the people that I'd killed. And because I took after my dad, I was a healer. I didn't have to do the fire ceremony. Not my most... Really, a decision I made when I was twenty-one, but mm-hmm. one I made and I stuck to her. Well, after uh, after eighteen years of therapy in the VA and them telling me that there was nothing they could do because it's nightmares and they can't shut my brain off because they tried every pill they had, I went home and and my wife says, "For about one hundred fifty thousand times, you know, maybe I ought to do that fire ceremony." And I said, well, "I really don't have nothing to write about because, you know, Vietnam don't bother me." except for maybe occasional nightmare. But after hearing the news that there was nothing they could do, I just had to learn to live with it. I decided, well, maybe it'd be worth a shot. So I, I sat down, and I wrote out my first fire ceremony. 23 pages later, and two and a half gallons of tears, I was done. And I took my tobacco, and I put my final prayer in it And I put my tobacco inside the paper. And then I wrapped it with a red cloth. And then I burned it. And I slept. Eight hours for the first time in 20 years without a nightmare. i forgiven myself for doing what I did,
2: mm-hmm.
1: for surviving. Mm-hmm. And it would help every beat this, this this ceremony is the greatest PTSD healer there is in the whole world if we could just get the word out.
0: Well, you know, I think we're going to do is take a little break. When we come back, that's where we're going to start again. We're going to walk through the Oneida Fire ceremony slower than we did in the first hour when you mentioned it to us and actually so that people can write down take some notes and do this for themselves and others that they meet we'll be right back our guest is russell four eagles his book the making of a healer so coming back to your beautiful book um about this wonderful oneida fire ceremony um I think maybe we should back up a little bit again and talk about the heart box first and then talk about the of Fire Ceremony.
1: Well, as I I said before, the heart box is the void between your heart, your backbone, your two lungs, and uh, it it lies centered right behind the heart. And that's where the creator give us that spot so that we can... Uh, store hurts, pains, and traumas in there. His idea was that we would store them in there for a couple days and then give them to him, but that was before he breathed life and found that this is my crap and I'm hanging on to her, thank you. not going to let her go. So that's that's why uh, sometime in the past, one of my ancestors, the creator, brought this fire ceremony because we weren't letting our stuff go and nobody was advancing up the spiral of life. The heart box isn't very big, but it'll hold lifetimes and lifetimes of stuff in there but there's a cost so it's cheap to put in there but it's not free and the cost is to energy from our own body to compress that stuff so your heart can beat and your lungs can move. The fire ceremony is what we use to clear that heart box and it's it's a very important part of my grandmother's culture, mine also, and my client's culture. I uh, just surpassed 52,300 clients, and every client I've given a copy of this. That's a lots of sheets of paper. Now, let's get into the fire ceremony. The first thing we do is we take a piece of paper, and by writing, we ask the Creator to help us, or we don't, we thank the Creator for helping us to forgive ourselves for situations where we had control or no control, excuse me, no control. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, you know, that situation's uh, deaths in the family, relationship breakups, car accidents. Because what does society teach us today? Somebody's always to blame. But that's not always the case. Sometimes, like Forrest Gump said, stuff happens, you know? And so, list today, or, or think about what happened today that hurt you or yesterday, last week, last month, last year. The more you can release, the more energy gets to go back to your body to keep you healthy. If everyone in the world would do the fire ceremony and eat a healthy, nutritious diet, I could be out of a job, and I truly would be grateful. Mm -hmm. I see, uh, on an average day, I see a person every half hour from 8 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock at night, every day and I'm booked out until like right now I guess I'm in mid December already which is unbelievable for a medicine man when I worked with my grandmother we would harvest herbs 25 days a month and do healing 5 days a month anyway getting back to the fires right I get sidetracked just a little tiny bit
0: <laughs> well you know I but but I think that those things are really important to mention because I also like the fact that you don't charge money though you ask for donations and that has always been a pet peeve of mine because the work I do as a trans species telepath or as a soul reader I've never charged never would and ask people to make a donation to their community instead of it and it bothers me a great deal that people call themselves shamans and healers and this and that and then they charge people a fortune to see them
1: yes yes that's ridiculous
0: so when when we um coming back though to the Anita Fire ceremony, so after you've written all of these things down to forgive yourself for, there's also the process of forgiving others.
1: Right. And that's 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 where we thank the creator for helping us to forgive people, places, situations, things that hurt us. That could be car accidents, that can be slipping on the stairs and breaking a leg. Because again, Society teaches somebody's to blame, and it's only you in a room full of mirrors. Who are you going to point the finger at? Well, that ain't necessarily the case. Some things are just accidents. So, and when you hope,
0: do the fire ceremony, you write everything down on a piece of right. paper, and then you put your tobacco inside of it, and then you wrap that in red cloth.
1: Yeah, hundred percent cotton, because we don't want to damage Mother Earth, trying to heal ourselves.
0: And then you tie that with purple string of some sort or yarn because purple being the vibration of healing.
1: Absolutely. I, I Actually, what I do is I, I buy a red and purple cloth both, and I cut the purple into little 3-8ths, or quarter
0: uh-huh. inch
1: strips, and I use that to make my ribbons out of. Now, in the old days, the fire ceremony was a big, big deal because we would go to the black spruce swamp, and we would rake the sphagnum moss away, and we'd gather black spruce roots, which were bright red, and we'd weave them into cloth. Well, then we would go to the stream banks and we'd collect nettle and we'd take the cordage out to make cordage out of it. And then we would take and uh, peel a soft maple bark and boil it in our birch baskets until the water got deep purple, and then we'd put the cordage in there. That's how we got our purple color. And the red, obviously, is from the spruce roots themselves. Then we would take birch bark and thin it down. I actually did one of these with grandma. It takes about a month to do do all this stuff. We would thin it down to a couple layers, and then we would take uh, paint rock, which we have a lot of here in Wisconsin, and you grind them to a fine powder, and then you mix them with heated venison or buffalo fat, and you make a paint out of it. And because we didn't have writing in in grandma's day, they, they do pictographs representing the things that they wanted to be forgiven for, or what they wanted to forgive themselves for, and and what they wanted to let go of, and so it was a big deal, and it was a really honored uh, ceremony, even though it was so simple because of the value that people put in it. When you've got to work a month to do something, well, now we can be department store hunters and gatherers and get our cloth up down and our pens and papers, and we can write. So it's a much easier thing to do, but it's still as effective. Anybody with PTSD should be doing this. I've helped countless numbers of veterans from Vietnam, from Iraq, from Kuwait, to Afghanistan even, are coming to get help because the, the therapy just doesn't do it by itself. Does that make sense?
0: Well, it makes sense to me, and, and I, I often find that people believe in the Western culture that you can solve problems that are spiritual and energetic with your mind. And while your mind can give you orientation, energy is energy, and those things which embrace fire and light have a much greater restorative capacity than all the talk in the world because the talk is not the energy.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's all, it's all, and it's all a package, the, the vibration of the earth, the vibration of the colors that are used for healing, the vibration of the cloth. And of the words we write down, they all have a frequency all their own. And the fire ceremony brings it all together. You know, Western medicine, modern doctors, they think, well, okay, we'll give you a pill and that'll be that. But they don't treat the mind, body, and soul together. The spirit, everything has got to be treated at once Mm -hmm. to have really successful healings. Mm
0: -hmm. And I I love your stories of your, we're not going to go into it, but you tell a beautiful story about a rock calling you and then it took you to the rock's history and the past life of the people who worked with that rock for an ads that they made. Um, Talk to us a bit about why wherever any of us live, if we pay attention to what's around us, be it the pebbles on the street or the plant in our, on our balcony, that we really can elevate spirit and help restore the earth in very small ways that each one of us can do.
1: Absolutely. If, if everybody would would just be grateful to the plants, Mother Earth, our medicine, everything that's out there carries its own energy, and everything likes to be acknowledged, even, even the spirits that walk on the earth that most people can't see, can't hear. Although it seems to me now that the more and more people are starting to come around to see that stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. And young children, there seem to be whole slews of souls coming in who have cultivated this multidimensional vision and are able to hear, listen, and respond. One of the things you, you discussed, which I thought was really fascinating, when you study with Joe flying by, and decided on a vision quest, and he was what is he? Thus, the great nephew of the Lakota chief Sitting Bull. But yes. but vision quest, you know, you'll hear people go, "Well, I'm going on a vision quest this weekend," and I'm always thinking to myself, "Well, I wonder what kind of vision you're going to get."
1: <laughs> really, yeah, it, it, you know, it, it takes a year to prepare for a vision quest to do it right. But but there's some uh, you'll you'll learn some really large gods when you go on vision quest. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I didn't want to believe what I saw, but it turned out that the creator was right and I was wrong. That's what I get for thinking I'm so smart, you know.
0: (laughs) I I have a question for you that's not in your book, but something that I was shown once in meditation and would like your opinion. Um, I was shown that between the new moon and the full moon are DNA zips and unzips so that by the full moon, our DNA is completely open, so that drumming and chant um, actually inserts information into the DNA, giving it a new frequency.
1: It does, it absolutely does. Every, uh, every bit of healing I do, like I said, I, I use frequencies, and definitely in the mid-period between there, it seems that the, the healings actually are quicker. Not that they never work, they always work, but there's a certain periods during the moon phase that they, they just work better, and I'm sure it's because that DNA is open to, to being changed by the frequencies that I use. So.
0: Mm-hmm. And so it, it dawned on me that when we had matrilineal cultures, we also had a learn, lunar timekeeping, so that everybody's biological rhythm was the same as the Earth's tides, so that we were all kind of at this much greater harmonic amplitude all together, able to change the earth through our thoughts in a very positive fashion.
1: Absolutely. And there, there are groups of people now that we, we will get together, and thousands of us pray to, to help see that we can change Mother Earth for the better because uh, you know, the way we treat Mother Earth as a whole is not very good. You know what I mean, we uh, we just trespass and trespass and tr- trespass, taking, 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 and never giving back. Well, we do our drum circles here and, and whatnot. And we sing and pray for Mother Earth to uh, help her, because I wish there was a lot more people doing that, because it would be better for the whole. You can't just take, 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 and expect that to go on forever. Exactly. One of these days she'll get tired of our trespasses again and she'll have another cleansing. Well,
0: I'll tell you what, when we come back I'd like to talk about that because I know one of the beautiful teachings of White Buffalo Calf Woman and the Lakota teaching is that the buffalo stands on four legs and that we have these four ages and we've already had three cleansings. They say that by the time the buffalo loses its fourth leg, that's when there's no reason or, or no humans, but I'd like to hear from you what your grandmother taught you and what you see as well. Hello, my name is Judy Tallwing. I'm an Apache elder and a medicine woman, and
2: I do medicine painting. I'd like to encourage everybody to please go to the American Visionary Art Museum but on Key Highway, because it's a great light
0: in the city of Baltimore, and you're listening to another great light in Baltimore, 21st Century Radio with Dr. Zuhara Hieronymus. Thank you. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. Russell Four Eagles has been with us this evening. His beautiful book, The Making of a Healer, Teachings of my Oneida grandmother, a Quest 2014 release. And I thank you, Russell, for making it something that's not a big mystery, and you don't have to go pay $2,000 to a weekend workshop and no. um, become somebody's apprentice.
1: Great. Well, my grandmother was really great about wanting to get the knowledge out to help people. It's, healing is never, has been, never will be about money, it's about helping people. Exactly.
0: And and that really is the true calling. And I love that you point out that all of us are capable of healing. But as you also say, just like we can pick up a bat and a ball, not everybody's a Babe Ruth. So you go looking for the Babe Ruths as your apprentices, but it takes a long time to seriously apprentice. So it, it always bothers me. And I tell people, stay away from people who have weekend workshop titles, you know, master this, empress of that. Yes. <laughs> Because it's just not authentic, and it can be very dangerous. It's not just that, oh, you know, you're wasting your money. It's that it can really interfere with your own um, progress. So we live at a very interesting time, as they would say. We all know that the earth is disassembling, but at the same time we're called to restoration and preservation. What can each one of us do to make a difference?
1: Well, about once or twice a year we have a large gathering for fire ceremony. But it's not about us. It's about our gratitude to Mother Earth and asking the Creator to please help take care of her. And we could get more groups doing that. We could raise the vibrational level and really help stave off all of the damage we're doing to Mother Earth by our factories and people who are so in the greed they don't care about Mother Earth. And it would be a, a great thing if everybody would do that and start these groups up. I have them in California and Iowa and, all over going now, but it's really cool. I've been putting out this fire ceremony, like I said, since 1967. And uh, my sister-in-law went to a wedding in in uh, Iowa, and I didn't know anybody at the wedding, but they were doing my fire ceremony, and they learned it from an Ojibwe woman up here that I had taught it to. It's really a great feeling to know that people are really caring and, and, and doing this really, really helpful to uh, Mother Earth.
0: And as you also make clear, you don't have to make a big bonfire with 3,000 people. You can actually, you pointed out, get a big can and open up some holes at the bottom so it has ventilation, put some coals in it, light your coals, and when they're white hot is when you actually put your prayers and your bundle of tobacco and the cloth onto the fire.
1: Exactly. In fact, I've got a big white a German Shepherd dog that I got. A, a lady called me, her husband, was in Mayo Hospital, and his pancreas was half gone, made up by cancer. And She said, I don't have any money. I said, you don't need money. She says, you save my husband. I've got a three-month-old German Shepherd, white German Shepherd, and I will breed my puppy and give you a dog. And I said, how about we let Creator save your husband, and you keep your damn dog? <laughs> but... but She runs around here like, all get out now, and I wouldn't trade her for the world. But it wasn't exactly what I wanted, but, you know, that's what real healing is about, is helping each other, not about the money, like I said before.
0: Well, you know, the white German Shepherd, I also have one, which I rescued from her. I say she rescued me, Um, and they are actually the closest of the dogs to Wolf.
1: Yes, they are. So... my dog here is, is my doorbell.
0: Mm-hmm. Mine too.
1: Yeah. Nothing gets by him.
0: No, and it's so interesting because I've noticed not just among my dog, who is also a white German shepherd, but that they see spirits. And that spooks her oh, out yeah. more than anything physical.
1: Yeah. Oh, much. I mean, I've I've been in the house. Well, like I said, my, my house is built around the burial mound. There's 11 people in there. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, a lot of times she'll watch a walk right through the wall. Mm-hmm. You your eyes go doot, 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 doo, 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 doo. Exactly.
0: That's what I see my Bella do. She'll just watch them walk through a room, walk around the room. Then, of course, she comes running over to the side of the bed <laughs> looking yes. for me to protect her. It's a very interesting thing, though, vision. And I'd like to spend a little time before our time together on the program ends about waking visions and dreaming visions and spiritual visions and why they all matter.
1: Oh, they all definitely do. I would say the most powerful vision is the waking vision, like when you're on vision quest. Mm-hmm. You you see the deep, deep, uh, real, meaningful stuff. And dreaming visions are good too because they can they can be keys to your past lives. Like uh, I told you, I grew up in a tarp paper shack. We had no electricity till 1959. And. Uh, I had that dream about being Aztec. Now, my mother had a fourth-grade education, and my father had a third-grade education. He could barely write his name. Um, so when I woke up from the dream, when the Spaniard run the sword through me, I woke up crying. And she said, what's the matter? And I said, well, the conquistador just stabbed me in the back. And she said, there's no such thing as that. You just made that up. Now, you go back to sleep, quit bothering us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and it was after that that I could speak Nahuatl fluently. Then again, my mother and my dad were both half Indian, and they wanted me to be a white person. So they wouldn't allow me to speak Oneida or any native language. Now, we didn't have any money, because it was really hard for Indian to get any money back in the 50s here. So my mom made this uh, tallow lye tallow soap. And every time she'd catch me speaking Oneida or Ojibwe or Nawa, she would wash my mouth out with it. it burned like sin. I'll tell you what, by the time I was sick, I made sure I was way away from her, except for the time I got lost up in the woods. Mm-hmm. I but, didn't want to lie to her, so I told her in, in Nawa that I'd been lost in the big woods.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then she chased me with the soap, of course. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. But but I think that it, but the important thing is that this happens to our children all the time. I say, you know, Ritalin has oh. destroyed some of our most creative children.
1: Absolutely does. Uh, well, you know, I, I had told you that my grandmother told me I was an indigo child. Right. And boy, do I know them well. But there are children now that are, are crystals. My youngest daughter is a crystal child. They're every bit as brilliant, every bit as smart, but they're not rebellious. like I was always bucking against boundaries. My dad would say, Don't cross that line or you're going to get a spanking. Well, I'd cross that line to see if I got the spanking. Sure enough, I did.
0: Yeah, I think that's why you and I have an affinity. (laughs) I joke. I spent a lot of my childhood in school in the principal's offices. Not for doing anything bad, really. Just speaking out of turn or,
1: you know, not listening to a teacher.
0: Just not wanting to be bored.
1: Right. I, I would get so bored because I could pick up what the teacher said in the first couple of minutes and then I had to wait for everybody to catch up. Yeah.
0: yeah, so we're we're I, lucky, Russell, that we weren't born in this time period because they would have tried to, like, give us a pharmaceutical to fry our brain.
1: Absolutely. You know, I was uh, about, I don't know, 24, 26. I'd been out of Vietnam, and I was working on the pipeline before I come a pipe welder. I was laboring on the pipe pipeline, and we were putting gas maids in, and I'd shoot the whole hog across the street, and I'd dig out the ditch, you know, and a lady in the business would come up, and she said, uh, I'm working on my Ph.D., and I'm going to do an IQ study for the state of Wisconsin. We're going to have everybody from every field there is at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, and I want you to be the control. And I said, well, what I got to do? And she said, nothing to show up. And I asked her, does it pay anything? She says, no. And I said, does it cost anything? She said, no. I said, well, I guess I can do it then. And so I, I went to this test, and the first test was an engineering test, 300 questions. Took me seven minutes. I mean, it's like the—I didn't really have to do anything. Though. It's like they were highlighted for me. I just had to mark them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I took it up to the professor, and he said, "Well, you're not done yet." He said, "This is a three-hour test." I said, "Well, I got them all answered. I don't know what else I can do." So I went around monkey drowning and every test was like that. I'd, the next test was hour and a half, took me fifteen minutes. And I got thinking about well, how come I'm going so fast, and there's professors and doctors, and psychiatrists, and all these other people in there, and it's taken them three hours, they're still working on that first test, or they're taking an hour and a half, and they're they're still not done with the first test. Then I got it, I I had the control test. And I figured, well, that must be a really easy test to make all those smart people work a lot harder, right? And so I got through the whole test. Um, Month or so later, I was on the same gas main out by the Marshfield Clinic Hospital beyond it, and 40 blocks from where she found me, and she comes stomping up, and you know how you can read people's body language? Sure. She's pissed. <laughs> she come up to me, and she said, you're a terrible control. And I said, did I flunk? And she said, we well, you can't flunk an IQ test. What's the matter with you? And I said, uh, well, what's the problem? She said, the closest person to you was 131, and they were 39 points below you, or something like that. hmm and I said, you know what I think? I think your test is messed up. Mm-hmm.
0: But it is interesting because you have this faculty that really great healers over the few decades I've had a chance to interview a few um, who who also come from traditional teachings and that they all see. And it's not he- hearing though you hear too but you were even describing that when you do a healing it's as if you have this little um post office with all these little slots and yeah. everybody's vibration goes into a little slot and when somebody else comes in with the similar kind of illness that like comes out of the slot and you know what vibration it is
1: and then i know right what to do and i don't have to hunt around for what to do i already know it mm-hmm.
0: and so when you um have your hands over the energy field of a person, and you feel the varying temperatures, how do you tune something up or turn it down?
1: Well, it, it depends on the, the The first time I go over a human body, I use an aquamarine light, if mm-hmm. you understand that. But it's not the colors; not the important part. It's the frequency of the color. And what that does is it stimulates negative energy from the body. It gets the cells to release it somehow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm still not sure how it works. I just know it does. Mm -hmm. And after I go over the body and get it all smoothed out so there's no hot spots, cold spots, well, then then it's time to start the healing. And I use, like, it's like a royal purple light. But again, it's the frequency of the light, not so much the color of the light.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I'll go over the body then and apply the healing to wherever it needs to be. And then what I do after that is I take and wrap them in a cocoon of blue light. And... That'll seal a healing in for four days, really super strong. After that, it starts fading. But if people do a fire ceremony, it'll last a couple of weeks and probably finish the healing completely.
0: Mm, beautiful, beautiful method. No, you it know, is true. Go
1: ahead. I've, I've lost 12 people out of my 700 or eight hundred and seven, no, eight hundred and eighty-one, whatever it was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Cancer clients, and the only ones I've lost, wouldn't take the herbs and they wouldn't do the fire ceremony for any reason, understand?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you've touched on so many beautiful things for us tonight, Russell, and one of the things we didn't get to is the name Four Eagles. Can you tell us that in like 45 seconds, how you got that name?
1: Well, that that came down from a great, great, great... in, In all of the 200 generations, there was six males before me. And for whatever reason, they were all four eagles. And it was passed down to me.
0: Well, it's a beautiful name, and you carry your lineage beautifully and have made such a difference on earth with your walk that I thank you for your gracious generosity with your spirit, your healing ability, and your love for Mother Earth and those who come to you.
1: Well, thank you very much. I sure appreciate you having me on the show. It's always my pleasure when I can help people one way or another, and I believe this has been helpful tonight.
0: I do as well. I, I'm so glad you were able to share some about the heart box. We didn't get to the breathing technique. We do have a minute. Is there any way you can do that quick breathing technique? Of, sure.
1: Okay. What what I do with my breathing technique is everybody's seen football on TV. they got that imaginary line out there and tells where the ball's supposed to be or something. I don't know what it's for. I don't follow football. But anyway, I turn that sideways on top of my head, and I take a deep breath in my nose, and I use that imaginary line, which I turn, turn to purple, And I push it right down through my body. As your breath comes in, and starts going down your lungs. You take that line, push it right down through your feet into Mother Earth. And when you exhale through your mouth, (sighs) she takes that negative energy, transmutes it into positive. And when you exhale, you're pulling up good, positive energy from Mother Earth.
0: Yes, beautiful. With the hands straight up, you bring spirit down and then ground the negativity into the earth. Yep, And then as you exhale, you bring positive energy again back up from your feet, back out through your hands.
1: And when you learn to do that, you can get rid of headaches, my, minor aches and pains real easily I sent them to Mother Earth. I haven't used an aspirin for a headache in probably 40 years.
0: Russell, four eagles, thank you so much for being our guest on 21st Century Radio. Everybody, go buy this beautiful book, The Making of a Healer, Teachings of My Anaida Grandmother. And here we are at the end of the hour. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. I'm Dr. Zohar Hieronymus, and we hope you enjoyed the show.